Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oscar Venhuis. Every weekend I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. In today's episode, I talked with artist Lo Xiongwan about the weirdness of the Netherlands, the post-human crisis, the science as a new religion, his treasure hunt in Arles in France, and we spoke about society's challenge of living with discomfort. And of course, before we begin, I wish all listeners a peaceful and festive season ahead. Welcome Xiongwan, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a you can say a normal day in the Netherlands. As uh, as December is approaching, uh, we are getting more and more busy because people are getting to holiday. So yeah, before the end of the year, there are quite a lot of deadlines, quite a lot of things to take care of before people go completely offline. <laughs> so you are originally from Taiwan, but ended up in the Netherlands. Where exactly are you calling from today? Now I'm based in Leiden. It's a pretty small town and not very far from The Hague. Oh, Leiden is a beautiful town. But how did he end up in Leiden from Taiwan? So after my residency in Amsterdam, I was looking for a place to stay. Uh, So my friend and I actually found a place in Leiden, which the owner of the place is actually a Taiwanese, uh, Taiwanese person who actually lives in Taiwan right now. So he, he basically have uh, a house. And by coincidence, the previous guests, are, the previous uh, residents are vacating the space. So we took over at a reasonable price. So uh, yeah, we decided to stay at Leiden. I think the living quality we can get for the same price is way higher than that of Amsterdam. And we also like to live in a quiet place rather than a proudy city. So that's why we choose this house. And it's pretty close to many places. It's just uh, 16 minutes away from the airport. That actually saved my life last time when I woke up too late before I catch a plane to Taiwan. So yeah, there are a lot of benefits <laughs> to stay in Leiden. I was in Leiden earlier this year and similar to Amsterdam, Utrecht and Groningen, as well, the old city centers, they look like walking through a museum because the buildings along the canals are all protected and in their original state. So it really looks like a postcard and it feels as if time has stood still. Yeah, I really like the atmosphere of the small town. I'm not too familiar with Leiden, to be honest, uh, about the history and stuff, but I enjoy the atmosphere. When I stay in Amsterdam, I also stayed in Centrum, but it was a quiet spot in Centrum that is very rare to find. So I enjoy the mood and vibe uh, going on here. Yeah, 
I think it's because I grew up in cities. That's why I prefer quietness. Like all the, my Dutch friend and all the friends from Europe, they really prefer something like Rotterdam, a big city, because they, when I visit their houses in a different part of Europe, I realized that, oh, they stay in a very beautiful places uh, nearby a farm, totally quiet. But for them, it's very boring. <laughs> but for me, um, yeah, I had enough of cities like uh, Taipei and Kaohsiung. I mean, the vibe and tempo of it is uh, a little bit too quick for me. So for me, uh, at the current state of mind, I prefer uh, working and living in, in a more quiet or uh, slow tempo. <laughs> The reason why I got in touch with you was through Zoe Yet, the director of the Hong Kong Museum in Taipei. So, Zoe, many thanks for the introduction. A big shout out to you and the suggestion. But let's begin with discussing your background so listeners have a better understanding of who you are. So explain to me who Xiang Wen is. Yeah, so I was born in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. It's like a harbor city in Taiwan. And I was uh, educated in Taiwan, I think, until I was 23, I think. So my formulative years are, were in Taiwan, which I, uh, where I studied to become uh, electrical engineer or computer scientist uh, when I was in college. But fortunately, I'm not very good at programming and um, uh, advanced mathematics and stuff. So I end up taking another route, uh, which I become in the creative industry. I wouldn't, sometimes I wouldn't dare say that I'm an artist. I would say that I do creative interventions on the topics that I'm interested in. So maybe we can talk about why I end up in the Netherlands. So I was in the photo club when I was in the university. And I think that is the first incident that allows me to see what, what else I can do because I really like photography at the time. And as time went by, I became a little bit more serious on photography and I really wish to study it in a way. But in Taiwan, we don't have a photography education. So I have to find other places. I mean, formal education in Taiwan. Photography is not something that we can study in art schools. Uh, so I've been hunting for or searching for different options for studying photography. I visited the US and also France. At the time, I, I wanted to study in France because I think it has a rich history in photography actually study French for one year. <laughs> but uh, when I really uh, stayed in Paris for a while, I realized that maybe it's not a place for me. The tradition is a little bit too much for me. So I, at that time, I helped a friend to relocate from Paris to Amsterdam. And, I, and then I stayed in Amsterdam for about a month. Then I realized that, hey, everything in Amsterdam is kind of uh, funky. It's kind of, yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it's a bit weird uh, that what, what people have been doing. Uh, I realized that uh, in photography, that's also the case. I mean, the city or the, the country is surrounded by powerful art, artistic uh, nations such as France, or even uh, UK or Germany, uh, which are very uh, walking in the very frontier of photography or art in contemporary art scene. But 
uh, Amsterdam held its own spot. It didn't sway towards any of these uh, artistic superpower. It developed its own style, actually, in a way. So I'm very curious what's going on here. So that's why I didn't think too much before I choose to study photography in the Netherlands. In that, that was in 2015. So that's the beginning of my life in the Netherlands, about eight years ago, as a student of uh, photography. What I'm curious about is how you experience the Netherlands. You said that the Netherlands is in between other dominant creative places, but has been able to carve out their own style. Can you speak more about this? Yeah, for example, when you see photography in France or Germany, you always associate with some kind of style, uh, sometimes more classical and sometimes more formal. Yeah, you, you can think about a lot of very iconic French or German photographer. But when you think of photographers in the Netherlands, I think everybody has their own artistic language and uh, they are not afraid to break things up. So I think the the style for of photography in the Netherlands I can say it's bolder than what I saw elsewhere. People are not af- afraid to to challenge things, to develop alternative narrative and visual languages for photography. Yeah, you cannot say that uh, Dutch photography is like this or that, but it's more chaotic in a way, and people embrace that. People are not afraid to to defy what they are taught. So I think it's a it's an interesting trend. But of course, there is a history for, for photography uh, in the Netherlands, actually a history for documentary, basically documenting stuff in the Netherlands. And people are really fascinated by this desire to record and document everything e- either in data form or in visual form. Yeah, you can see that in either the Dutch paintings uh, they document daily life, or now they have a lot of archives in different cities, basically documents everything. They make map, they record every details of the city. There is even a map for all the trees in Amsterdam. Yeah, it is an online map. You can just browse through and uh, you can graphically interact with every individual tree in Amsterdam. And there's a uh, maybe a dozen or, or even maybe 50 kinds of these map in, in the Amsterdam map archive. Uh, it's all online. It's, it's incredible that the Dutch people love documentation and they love to do it in a fun way. So that also kind of reflects in their photography as well. Now, let's talk about your work. When I look at your work and you refer to the Dutch style, how has this impacted your work? Yeah, so when I was studying in the master program of St. Joost, it was a photography program. But in the end, the teachers doesn't really like my photography work or documents or, or the things that, that I uh, that that I collected, uh, they they really doesn't like my approach visually. So when I say that, oh, maybe I can try something else. Maybe I can develop a video game for the project. And the teachers are were were very happy. They said, oh, please make a video game. And I said, oh, but I'm in a photography program. Is that okay? They said, ah. Uh, it's okay. Uh, so I end up making something interactive. I made up, end up 
trying to learn how to make a video game in 40 days. That's the time period I had before graduation. So that was quite a crazy period. Yeah, so so I graduated with video game about dairy farming uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, by the way, in my graduation show, nobody makes a picture. I mean, in the whole graduation show for the photography program, there was not a single still image in the graduation show. That also said something about Dutch photography education, I, I think. Uh, and I, I'm encouraged to, to try something else. I'm encouraged to to combine my experience uh, either photographically or engineeringly in the past and mingle with my creative endeavors and uh, produce something that I've never tried before and formulate another relationship with the audience. So I think that's how this vibe is manifesting in the students. I mean, I think all the students in our year tried something that is completely outside their comfort zone more or less, I think. And for me, it is especially intense because uh, after I studied in St. Joe's in, in a master program, I kind of take a turn from photography to more direct experience-based uh, approach. Yeah, so that's how the, the education system and also the, the vibe in general in the Netherlands has been uh, helping me in a way. And how is your own identity embedded in your current work? So since I was in high school, yeah, Taiwanese people face a lot of identity crisis. People ask you, oh, are you Taiwanese or do you associate yourself with uh, being a Chinese person? So in uh, ever since high school, deep in my mind, I identify myself as a human on earth. Yeah, I'm just a, a human. Uh, I belong to the species human. That is something that I cannot change. And I currently live on Earth. So uh, for your question, I don't specifically work with my own personal history or my so-called home country. That is not the that is in my work, but not the major focus of my work. But I think, um, of course, I'm from Taiwan. So a lot of things happened to me in Taiwan, such as the entire uh, formulative years uh, from zero to 24 years old. I think that that is also manifesting in some parts of my work as well. But the focus of my work is uh, maybe not really dependent on my uh, so-called roots or uh, my homeland. When we talk about your work, because this is a podcast, how would you describe it yourself? Yeah, so casually, I'll introduce myself as uh, I yeah I work as an artist uh, with a with a quote as an artist, and my interest is the intricate relationship between non-humans and societies, and I often use this daily life, my daily life, actually as a point of departure. And uh, yeah, my strategy recently is is more leaning towards direct experience. So I create more games such as uh, Escape Room or Treasure Hunt. Those are two of my uh, current uh, current work, uh, recent work actually. So yeah, that is uh, I think how I dis- describe myself. So it's taking another look at our relationship with non-humans and the societies that uh, we are currently based in, and ask the question: uh, Why are we in a situation where we are in right now? Why are we facing 
so many different kinds of environmental or post-human crisis right now. What put us in this situation? And uh, what makes us human? Why are human have such a thick comfort zone? Uh, such as these questions uh, I'm interested in. The relationship between society and non-humans is a very fascinating theme, especially in the context of your own experience and your technology background. What else can you say about this? Yeah, for technology, I think uh, I think a lot of artists who came from maybe engineering or science background kind of really like to use uh, science and technology in their work. Uh, but to be honest, for me, that is not the case for me. I'm a fan of uh, low tech or no tech. I mean, I try to lower the amount of technology in my work. I, I don't use technology because I came from this background. I use them only when it's necessary. So when something can be done without high tech or without low tech, I will choose uh, being as minimum as possible to use technology or adopt kind of scientific things uh, in my work because um, for me, I I really have some issues with um, kind of using or worshipping science in art. So that uh, maybe we can talk a, a little bit about that later. Uh, that's also came from my scientific background. In simple words, I, I don't think that we should completely trust a technology and scientists. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's delve direct into this. Why have you come to this conclusion? Do you mind to elaborate or elaborating on why you said we should not completely trust scientists and technology? Yeah, so when I was uh, studying electrical engineering in National Taiwan University in Taipei, I had a hard time when, when I was in the master program in, in, the, first, uh, in the first year. I actually end up being a little bit depressed at the moment because I I have a feeling that the project that we have been developing in our lab has a problematic side, but nobody really think about this problematic side in the weekly meetings in our lab. So I decided to take the question to my professor. So I asked her, so before you do this research, do you ever consider the social consequences or the ethical consequences of this project that you have been carrying out in the academia? And to my surprise, she answered, uh, no, I'm a scientist. I'm not a sociologist or I'm not a, not a philosopher. So I'm not entitled to think about these questions. She said that if you think about these questions all the time, a lot of scientific work cannot be carried out. Those are the job for sociologists and philosophers. That's not my job. So I'm quite surprised that by this answer, I replied by saying that, oh, dear professor, not having a sociology training is one problem, but not thinking about ethical consequences for your work at all is totally a different thing. And the professor was startled. He said, oh, I think you are right. Maybe I'll think more about it. Uh, so that is what I encountered when I was uh, studying engineering or, uh, or computer science at the time. So 
Yeah, I don't think that is the only case in the world, of course. I think a lot of scientists think about their work that way, that they don't have the obligation or they don't even have, they think that they don't even have the right to think about these questions. And that is, for me, a little bit scary, that how the, the academia is seeing themselves, they are confining themselves in a certain domain and not trying to think about the different consequences that will entail for their scientific or engineering projects. Of course, there are a lot of very good scientists uh, or, or very responsible scientists who take this seriously. I also know quite a few of them. But a portion of scientific work, I think, is done without uh, these concerns. So that is the first point. Sorry, it's a bit long. But there is a second point for me that is perhaps more relevant to my current practice right now, which also kind of answered the question why art is necessary in the current discourse of the Anthropocene uh, or of the situation where we are at right now. And it goes like this. I think people kind of worship science right now globally as a kind of like a new religion. People believe in science and people who are not be, uh, not totally believe in science or have doubt in science are often uh, laugh at or mocked at. Uh, yes, and, ah, you are not scientific, you are not educated. Uh, people kind of say, say that, uh, oh, you don't have a scientific proof or background. So people take science as a fact or truth uh, in a way. But for me, that is actually a huge misunderstanding or the basis of science that people misunderstood the essence of science because science is actually not a pursuit of truth. It is transmission of doubt. So the, the essence of science is questioning. It's not believing. It's not forming a belief system. Because if you are in a belief system, you are, it is very difficult for you to imagine otherwise. You are stuck in this belief system like forever. You believe in something and um, yeah, you are, you are just basically uh, stick to this uh, system. It's very difficult for you to think about, hey, maybe there is something wrong. Maybe there is uh, something that we should take another look at. When words are spoken by scientists, or maybe less so by engineers, people tend to take them seriously. Maybe people tend to take them as truth. Just like if they go to a doctor, they are very docile. They are very uh, submissive. They People take doctors' words as fact. It's like uh, people take scientists' work also as fact. For me, that is very problematic. When I was trained uh, in an engineer or scientific background, I realized that when there are two scientists in the same room, they don't necessarily agree with each other. They sometimes fight with each other. So uh, probably maybe sometimes opposite uh, things. So one scientist will say that, ah, I think the, the world worked this way. The other will say that the world worked the other way. So there's a lot of questioning going on in science. And yeah, when people believe in one side, they are not hearing the other side. So I think uh, it's more about trying to break things rather than establish a fixed truth. That is what I have a problem with the current trend of people really blind trusting what scientists say. Uh, so I think that the work is about making questions rather than, oh, uh, working with scientists and making a, a belief system that, oh, we should think this way or that way.
Yeah. Has this also been one of your motivations to focus on art, to question what and why we do things in life? I think when I was studying actually in Taiwan University, I end up in a class in actually the foreign literature department by Professor Zhong Hui Huang. And the name of the class was Literature, Animal and Society. So for me, that was really new for me because, oh, I at that time, I, I never knew that we can talk about animals from a literature perspective. And basically, in Professor Zhonghui Huang's lecture, she uses maybe 10 short stories in English literature to highlight different intricate aspects uh, between the relationship of uh, human and animals. So at that time, I was really indulged in this course because every story is so fascinating. And these stories kind of got me thinking, uh, hey, maybe there is something weird going on between my own relationship with animals. So this is a revelation for me because this literature approach actually sparked my inner search on my personal relationship between human and animals. And it is actually voluntarily, it's it's actually, you can say it's spontaneous. It's not by force, like when maybe a scientist or an activist is telling you that, oh, we should do that or we should do this. It's from something more subtle, more poetic. It's a story. It's not something didactic that is telling you what to do, but it kind of moved me uh, in a way very subtly and helped me to ask my own questions. So for me, that is very powerful. That is something that I have never saw in science or even activism, uh, because the question uh, formulated by myself stuck with me for quite a long time. So uh, that is the first time I witnessed that perhaps literature or in a broader sense, maybe art have a role in contemporary discourse. A lot of scientists will tell you that they are very good at making laboratory work. They are very good at making experiments. But communicating with people, that is something that scientists is not very good at. Telling stories is also something that scientists are not particularly good at. So for me, there is a whole lot of possibility in making, in doing creative work, and trying to manifest the questions or even smuggle the ideas or smuggle the questions into people's mind or into my mind. So for me, I think creative endeavors in all the different discourses, not only uh, non-human discourse, but also in gender issues or in migrant issues, uh, I think uh, they all play a very critical role. That is, for me, it's uh, smuggling the questions or smuggling certain uh, alternative views into the audience's mind. I, I think that works uh, brilliantly. I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The Last Supper is offered to you at zero cost. And if you like this show about art in Asia... Give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel. Many thanks and let's continue. Now let's talk about your most recent project titled Here Near. This is an ongoing project 
that you opened last year in 2022 in France. What can you say about the background and how this project started and why this is still ongoing? Yeah, the exhibition I did in Arles, in the south of France, it's called Here Near. But it is an exhibition of three separate artists. So it's a group exhibition called Here and Near, and curated by uh, Daria Tuminas, who is a curator at Photodoc in the, in the Netherlands. The title of my work is uh, Watch Out. And uh, the, the work, it's a site-specific work in the south of France. So actually, it was from a residency in Arles, in the south of France. The three of us, Tanya Engelberts, Matthew Aslan, and I were invited to reflect on the environmental issues surrounding the city of Al near the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so we work on three separate projects. And for me, I work with roadkills. What I found out is that the city Arles is very close by to the largest wetland in the south of France, the Camargue. Actually, the regional park, it's a wetland that is formed by the delta of the River Rhone. You might remember River Rhone from Vincent van Gogh's painting, The Starry Night. Uh, he painted a lot because he used to live in Arles, actually. But what van Gogh didn't paint, uh, I think, is the wetland. Yeah, I think it, it exists in his time. Maybe he just didn't visit there. Yeah, the point is there are a huge amount of birds, mammals, and reptiles uh, in the wetland. A lot of beautiful things are going on. But in the same time, there are a lot of motorways crossing through this very beautiful wetland. They are often very straight, and people in France often drive very, very fast. And so when the ecology and traffic occur in the same spot, it didn't end well for the former. So the animals get hit by cars, unfortunately, every day, every night. Uh, so I, I stumble upon a news piece that says that, oh, motorists uh, or car drivers are encouraged to slow down rather than speeding through the beautiful terrain and hitting different kinds of animals. Uh, so the government tried to tell the, the people to slow down and, and to look outside, enjoy the beautiful nature. Uh, even better, they, they should uh, stop and take pictures of uh, animals and wildlife rather than uh, just uh, speeding from point A to point B. But you know, uh, French people doesn't really <laughs> listen to this uh, very gentle suggestions from the government, of course. So uh, when I was there, I realized that, uh, unfortunately, I still see a lot of dead animals uh, on the roadways. And there are also a lot of speeding cars. When I was cycling there, it's very terrible. A lot of cars are speeding beside you. They are just uh, driving, I think, way above speed limits, actually. So I asked myself, what can I do in this scenario? So I came up with the idea of making a treasure hunt. So what I did is I made uh, jewelry pieces with a jewelry designer in Amsterdam, uh, Jinghui. So we made jewelry pieces based on the roadkills I found in these areas. I mean, I didn't use the, the dead body, but I used the shape of the dead animals to make jewelry pieces. We made uh, 11 of them, and we put these jewelry pieces back to the spot where I found the dead animals. 
So basically, we hide eleven jewelry pieces. I think it worth about fifteen、uh, thousand euros. Back to the wetland, which is about one thousand、uh, square kilometers. So we form a situation where there is a treasure hunt about road kills going on、uh, in the wetland. So the idea is this: so if people try to participate in this treasure hunting game. They are kind of like forced to slow down because you cannot find any treasure if you are in a speeding car. You have to either walk or bicycle to find these、uh, jewelry pieces. So they are forced to engage the nature, the the wetland, in another speed or in another way of travel. That is the point. And in the exhibition, I show the clues for the treasure hunt. So I made、uh, landscape photography, and also videos of the places where I hide the treasure. So people can look at the pictures、uh, and think about, hmm, where can this landscape be in this、uh, thousand square meter wetland? They are not only forced to slow down, but they are also forced to observe with their eyes and think about, oh, maybe this tree. I know this tree somewhere, or oh, maybe I know this terrain somewhere. So they are forced to. Connect with nature through these、uh, visual clues, and they、uh, and by formulating these ideas, these connection between nature and these clues, maybe they have a chance to locate one of these treasures, and they can own this treasure, this own this jewelry art piece, if they find it. So that is basically the intervention. Do you happen to know if people have found all the treasures? Yeah, people went crazy. It's crazier than than I expected. Well, first of all, I think the what what I wish to do is get people to engage, get people to to play this game. Uh, so, but what I didn't expect is that people respond really well. I was, yeah, when I was making game, I, I was always a little bit scared because what would happen if nobody actually played it. But in this case, no, people kind of react really positively. So、uh, when I was walking in the city of Ala, sometimes I get stopped by the maybe some grandma will stop me and say, "Hey, hey, 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 you!、Uh, I saw your work. I'm going to find treasure." She just basically just、uh, jump around me. I'm going to find treasure. I'm going to find treasure. I am not only me. I'm going to ask grandpa to find treasure as well. She said that, "Oh, this never happened to our city before. This,、uh, uh, thank you for making this.、Uh, oh, I will tell everyone that、uh, there's artists make work in Kamag, and we can go treasure hunting." So people went a bit crazy, and I think two days after the exhibition opened, somebody found one. Treasure piece,、uh, and and that is totally not expected because I thought it's quite difficult. Yeah, one one thousand square kilometers、uh, for eleven pieces. I think that is quite difficult. But I actually have an Instagram page of、uh, people finding these、uh, these treasures. You can this is available from my website. But for the podcast, I will read it out. Is、uh, at watchout dot two thousand twenty three dot two thousand twenty four. So this is the、uh, Instagram page which, where I post all the updates. There are a lot of、uh, fascinating stories, actually.、Uh, people, for example, there are couples who are on holiday. When they see the work, they decided not to do their holiday. They want to find a treasure piece, so they spend like、uh, one week to try to locate one treasure piece, and they、uh, they use all my clues. They use clues that I didn't know exist. 
they print out maps. They try to use open data. When they look at uh, my pictures, they, they see the like power line. They pull out power line open data from the internet and correlate these data with the motorways and they pinpoint the locations with different techniques. And I was very surprised. And uh, yeah, they, they really spend a lot of time and effort and patience to really carpet search the, these locations and found the jewelry pieces. So it's not easy to say the least. They, they spend one week or, or more to, to find these treasures. When they wrote to me, it's always a very long story how they locate the treasure and how excited they were. Uh, we woke up at 5 a.m. in the morning to, to go to the woods, to go to the, to go to the national park and uh, bitten by mosquitoes or some of their tell me that their heart almost explodes when they saw the terrain, when they saw the tree in my picture. Yeah, it's it's all very exciting for them, actually. And as a treasure hunting game maker, that is the biggest reward, to see people playing it, to see people really take another step, uh, another way of looking at nature in the process. Uh, so for me, that is, uh, that is very, very rewarding for me. So to be honest, uh, there are already 10 pieces of these jewelries already found. Uh, over the, the past four months, I think. And one piece, I think, still remains. And the game will last, I think, uh, forever. If that piece were not found, I will not take it back. So people can still go there and uh, try to locate this last piece. Where could it be? That's very exciting for me. Of course, I will post the link to the website and to your Instagram account as well. So when you visit these, you will see a photo that provides a visual clue, although it's kind of abstract. There are some coordinates and you blanked out some of the numbers, but people need to be quick because I think most of them have already been found. So my question for you is, if I'm not mistaken, your initial starting point was to highlight the road kills or were you also trying to reduce the accidents? The initial starting point is not to mitigate the roadkill issue, is to get people discuss about the roadkill issue and reimagine the other way of travel or the other speed from which you can experience nature, experience the wetland. So I don't think this project by itself in this short period of time can change the status quo. But I think reimagining the place from a human perspective, uh, yeah, we cannot evade. Yeah, to reimagine the possibilities, I think it is the first step for changes, for representation, for changes. I think that is reimagining the scenario, I think is something that what my project is trying to do. So I didn't do a research on whether this project really make roadkill a less likely scenario. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it is possible to do this in a short period of time. But I think it is a way for people who are not concerning roadkills in their daily agenda. It is a way for them to start the disc, uh, for, for people and also for me to start the discussion of uh, whether we should do something about roadkills. Maybe it's not making more treasure hunting games, but maybe it's about uh, making roadkills less likely by supporting uh, local ecological endeavors to mitigate these issues, trying to pressure the government to implementing more hardware structures or regulations that will encourage the motorists to slow down or to encourage the animals to escape from dangerous situations. So I think uh, the artwork itself, I don't think the goal is to 
try to invent a way to to solve the problem. I don't think it, it worked that way. But yeah, when people start discussing the problem, I think it's a it's a really nice step. And as far as I can see, the government cannot do that. I think that is the the point uh, where where I see this scenario. The government failed to initiate this dialogue. So for me, it is kind of like a catalyst. It is participating in this reaction, but it is not something that the ingredient that will carry out the change. And for me, this project, I think. There's a chance that this project will also happen in Taiwan in 2025, I think, uh, in which I want to work with Taiwan Biodiversity Center. They they have a whole roadkill database system going on there. So they are very, also very interested what this project can do to spark off discussions among Taiwanese people to reach a broader audience. So by working with uh, the Biodiversity Center, uh, we can, perhaps we can uh, help maybe also Taiwanese people to engage with this issue and also understand why it is necessary to think about the underlying or implications of the roadkill issues. And how did the local media respond to this? Do they still cover it after the opening of the exhibition? And what is their role in this project? Uh, yeah, actually, the media is involved in this, but it's not for my own exposure. I mean, yeah, the media is also an exhibition site for me because not every person will visit the, the show but maybe people will read the local paper. So to get this project on the local paper is part of the project itself. So I think some people, when they read the paper, they also realize this situation and they will perhaps Google to find the visual clues uh, for this project. So for me, yeah, I didn't research how much uh, personal exposure I got. That is not very important for me. (laughs) But yeah, for the project itself, I think it's, I think the, the, for example, the local paper La Provence, they they publish an article on that. And that I think will help the people who did not visit the show, they can also see the see the work. I had a, a little regret that I, I I really intend to to put the project in the local car rental companies, and that is something I have no time to do. But I think that's necessary. Something I missed in this whole process. So I print these small booklets called a watch out booklet that people can bring to their treasure hunt. There, there are all the visual clues inside. So uh, the plan was to insert these booklets or place this booklet in the car rental companies that is uh, in the south of France. But at the time, we simply did not have the time and effort to really go through, uh, pull through this. But I hope I can do that in Taiwan or in another country yeah, where, where I made a second edition of, of this project. Hopefully you'll be able to do this project in Taiwan and of course you are most welcome to do this in Hong Kong where I believe a discussion about the significance of our wildlife or non-humans is much needed. So what are you working on for next year 2024? Next year will be the I think the 15th edition of the Manifesta which is a nomadic biennale in Europe. So next year, the Manifesta will happen in Barcelona. You can call that uh, the north of Spain. I was asked 
to do a research on a hotspot where they are focusing on, which is the Lobregat River in the vicinity of Barcelona, which is, uh, I think it had been the most exploited river on the planet. I think it was named that way. It's a troubled river. So from this June, June 2023, myself and my colleague from the Embassy of the North Sea, which is, a, which is an NGO from the Netherlands, we were commissioned to carry out research on the, the Lobregat River in Spain and trying to pinpoint the problematic end of in and around this river or what had happened to this river and trying to interfere it with creative endeavors. So that is what I'm currently working on now. Yeah, to introduce this river a little bit more. So yeah, people really hate this river from even from the Roman period, people hate this river. Uh, when you visit Barcelona, you will never see this river because Barcelona was built maybe six or seven kilometers away from this river. Uh, people are scared of the river because it floods throughout history. So people doesn't really like this river. And it is too shallow for navigation. So no boats can travel on this river. So it has no functionality for people, even from the Roman period. This river caused only trouble. You cannot navigate it, but it is wide enough for people to experience trouble crossing through it. So you can see yeah, people have no use for it. Yeah. Uh, the Barcelona people said that oh, basically people just dump trash into it uh, throughout history. And the uh, water cleaning system was only available in the 1990s. So throughout like a, maybe 2000 years of human intervention, there was no water pollution mitigation system going on in this river. So it suffers all the industrial revolution and all the chemical factories, mining issues. Uh, so the pollutants are all dumped into this river, including a lot of salt, including uh, salt mining. There's a huge salt mountain, which is the highest mountain around the area uh, from salt mining. Yeah, it's artificial. Yeah, it's a mountain of salt. And when it rains, the salt just washed into the river and the river water in uh, can be six times saltier than the sea uh, in certain areas. And uh, Barcelona people, they built the largest uh, desalination plant in the mouth of the river. I thought it was for the seawater, but no, it was for the river. <laughs> for, and, and so that's how polluted the water is. But in a way, Barcelona people connect with this water because half of the population drink the water from the river every day. So people actually have a personal relationship, has an intimate relationship with, with the river. They drink its water, but they hate this river in the same time. So my project, uh, or our project with the Embassy of the North Sea is about how to reconnect with the river, with people, and how to formulate another uh, way to imagine this river. Because people have already given up on imagining a beautiful delta. People have already give up this dream. People think that, oh, this is not possible at all. But I think our job is to re-engage people with the river itself and acknowledge the river and trying to 
imagine it perhaps in another way. Whether we can save it or not is another question. But I think the point is not to make it worse. And maybe there is at least something we can do right now to support maybe the the future engineering project or the future ecological project concerning this river. So that is something that we are going to work on in in、uh, right now and also in the coming year. Before you wrap up this conversation, is there anything else you want people to know about your work? Yeah, yeah. For for me, I want to highlight、uh, one one last thing is it's about comfort zone. For me, my work basically、uh, commission work from aside for my personal works. It's about maybe it's about finding trouble for myself and trying to step out of my own comfort zone. For example, I, I I made my own down jacket by picking out feathers from the ground,、uh, from the geese、uh, that naturally shed feathers to the parks in, in Breda, actually where where I live in the past. So I I was in involved in the Arctic residency, so I try to make my own outfit instead of buying one from the supermarket. So、uh, the easy step is to go to the supermarket or the H I M or Uniqlo to just buy a down. Jacket and go to the Arctic.、Uh, for me, I want to challenge my life, my lifestyle,、uh, by making my own down jacket in that project. And for me, that is a step to step outside the comfort zone, finding、uh, finding trouble for myself to see what will happen if I don't follow my routine, if I don't follow the the easy way. Which is mass consumption in our society. So for me, it is very difficult for me to step outside the comfort zone. But I think it is worth to take another step to behave differently from、uh, what we are used to in the past. And I think we, including myself, will reimagine、uh, our relationship with the either the society、uh, or the environment or the animals、uh, and plants. Uh, we we can reimagine our re- relationship with these non-human entities in another way if we are willing to spend some energy and step outside this comfort zone. What I believe is that we are at a disadvantage here because I think we are a species that has a thick comfort zone issue hidden in our genetics. That is my theory that we as a species tend. To develop these comfort zones,、uh, that we follow our our life in a really routine way. We don't like to make changes. We don't. Some people doesn't like to wear a mask in Europe when there's COVID, and and they hate to、uh, alter the very tiniest things in their life. Our species has a comfort zone issue. I think maybe it is genetic. Maybe it is something that is.、Uh, Kind of like a gift from evolution that we have this comfort zone. So we really need to spend some energy to cross through this threshold, to th- cross through this barrier. That we should acknowledge that we have this comfort zone, and we should maybe、uh, spend more energy on trying to think about this、uh, in another way or take action in another way. I think that if the universe have some. Well, let's say it this way: If a species want to reach the next level of civilization, let's say,、uh, to put it bluntly, in the universe,、uh, maybe there's an alien species which has a higher level of civilization than us. I think in order for this species to reach a higher civilization, I think that species should have 
a thinner comfort zone in their collective momentum. Not like us, we have a thick comfort zone. But I think if an alien species or whatever species, if they want to reach another level of civilization, their comfort zone should not be too thick. They should be able to adapt to new new ways of thinking, new ways of uh, facing their life, new methods, new, uh, new ways to imagine the status quo relatively freely than human beings, than homo sapiens. And we are at a disadvantage here. So I think that for me, it's also very difficult. I'm not excluded from humanhood. Yeah, for me, that is perhaps the message I wish to send maybe with my, my project is to acknowledge this fact, acknowledge that we are only human and perhaps that we can rethink about our future if we acknowledge that we are not a very, we are not very well suited to develop another phase of civilization. So that is, I think, what I try to try to develop my work around in a broader sense. I'm going to ask you my last question, which is about who you would invite if you were to have your last supper and what would you talk about at your last meal? Uh, for me, maybe maybe not only humans. Maybe my last, last supper wouldn't be in a, in a room or something at all. Maybe I can be at a beach or some nice place, uh, in, not in a city, maybe. In a place, I don't think it's necessary to be comfortable for me as a human. Maybe I can be in the woods. Maybe I can be the last supper for an, or supper for another animal. I don't know. Yeah, but for the last supper, I want to think it outside the current uh, human-centric discourse. So at least maybe it shouldn't be just uh, with my family, but maybe uh, it can also be with other entity that is surrounding our nature as uh, our, our societies uh, as well. I think uh, I haven't thought about specific thought. I don't think uh, it is necessary to eat things as well. I think uh, this, uh, in a broader sense, uh, uh, the Last Supper maybe is simply maybe to be with the non-human entities and yeah, and also my human families but without causing trouble for them. I think that is, the, that is the best way to go, maybe. Many thanks, Shanwen, for taking the time to talk with me today from Leiden in the Netherlands. Thank you, Oscar. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Last Supper with artist Lo Shanwen. If you like this show about art in Asia, you can support us by giving this episode a star rating and subscribing to this podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions or wish to participate in this podcast, you can contact me on oscar at thelastsopper.asia. You can visit my website www.thelastsopper.asia as well or contact me direct on Instagram at thelastsopper.asia.